Systems. I had the opportunity, the privilege of opening it up last week, but this week we have an incredibly special speaker that's going to come up and share God's word to us. Let's put our hands together for Pastor Brad as he comes up to bring God's word. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Of course, it's always a special time when we open God's word. Amen? Do you understand why we ask you to say amen? It means so be it. So you know that. Well, we're talking about just before Jesus comes and really the last days. And someone's car is about as set to experience its last days if you don't go and turn off its lights. Apparently, it's in the back. It's a RAV4ZZ3270. And you could kind of like just surreptitiously step up where we don't know it's you. But um, anyway, you might want to do that so we don't have to um, uh, share fellowship with you with cables later on. All right. Well, good morning, church. That was a little sad. Let's try it again. Good morning, church. I'm so glad that you're here today, and I'm so glad that God's Word is available for us. We are talking about just before Jesus comes. And last week, Pastor Matt shared a powerful message. How many of you heard it last week? If you didn't, make sure you go listen to it. And we are uh, really dialing in on this urgency that we all sense. And last week, he shared a verse from uh, chapter 24 of Matthew uh, that talked about the beginning of sorrows. And sorrows, we discovered, means birth pangs, uh, the pains of birth and the whole process of labor. Now, I don't have personal experience with this, but I have observed it up close a couple times. And so I remember, especially on our first few um, uh, events with this, we would start to know that a contraction was, we, my wife would start to notice that, and I would feel urgent on, on her behalf to call the doctor. And now our um, obstetrician was um, uh, Dr. Lee, and interestingly enough, he never wanted to talk to me. So, well, she's hurting. She needs to go in. Let me talk to her. And so then he would talk, and I discovered the method behind his madness. He was literally timing between contractions to see whether it was getting close. And he wanted to see whether or not she could still carry on a conversation. If she could still talk, say, well, why don't you hang out for a little bit longer? He would know that we're not close to the place. But the whole point about birth pangs is that it's increasing. And it gets closer. And there's a point that a baby is coming. Uh, the other thing that I learned is that the point that my wife said, I can't go any further. I got really excited because I knew we were close. That was the place, that whole sense. And you know what? As a world, do you not sense that the birth pangs are happening a little bit faster? The intensity is growing. And the good news is someday Jesus is coming. The birth will happen. It will be here. Now, um, uh, this message uh, pulls off this and follows a slightly different analogy. I've entitled it, Two-Minute Warning. Two-Minute Warning. Seems a little appropriate today, doesn't it? So let me help you out if you're uh, not familiar with football, um, in case you need a little education come tonight. But uh, the way I would divide up a football game is you have two halves, by the way. After that halftime show, which we're not going to show here at church, we're going to enjoy each other, we get into the second half of the game, which I would say is the beginning of the end. Then there are four quarters, and by the time you get to the fourth quarter, I'd say we're moving toward the end. But then you get to the two-minute warning, which is the ultimate end of the end. We're getting really close to that point, and it's not just for commercials, although you will discover they take advantage of that as well. But what we want to understand is there's an, a, a, a real intensity there. Rick Renner uh, noted that in the history of football, there was a time they didn't show the, the score clock or the time clock on the scoreboard. And so they would have to have a two-minute warning to tell both teams we're close to the end. That's the reason for it. And uh, the two-minute warning 
became one of the actual signs of the end of the game. Have you ever noticed that when you get to the two-minute warning, everything gets more intense? Everything becomes more important. Often more happens in the last two minutes of a game than even a whole previous quarter because of the intensity there. Teams will practice for months on their two-minute drills so that they're ready when that happens. Now, interesting enough, someone is going to win the game, and in a close game, every play and every second counts. I personally know that. My team, the Bengals, was in one of those kind of games, and they got to the two-minute warning, and it was one play or two plays that if they had just gone differently, we would be at the Super Bowl, but no one's sour about that right now as we're talking, right? I'm getting counseling as we speak. But meanwhile, I just want you to also know that um, I, I want to go on the record that each team tonight uh, has clear biblical precedent for winning the game. Listen, they shall mount up on wings like eagles. Some of you cheered, others didn't. And he is the chief cornerstone. So there you have it, and we'll see what happens. They both can claim God's word behind them, but you know what? God knows who's supposed to win. The one breakdown in this analogy of a two-minute warning, though, is we already know who's winning the game. We know who's winning, and it's not even close. That's not the issue in this two-minute warning. But there are some questions that remain. First of all, are we personally ready for the two-minute warning? Are we ready to face that? Second, are we even on the right team? Are we even there? And do we stay on his team to the end of the game? If you look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, it says, he who endures to the end will be saved. So some of those things are the urgencies that we're talking about today. Now, let's apply this to biblical history. In biblical history, the last days actually began on the day of Pentecost. Peter actually said that. For the past 2,000 years, we have been in the last days. I would describe that like the second half of our football game. And in fact, I would suggest that the fourth quarter started roughly around the 19th century in the 1800s. You'll see a little bit later why I suggest that. But here's my main point for the beginning of this message. It's this. It is clear that we are moving toward the last of the last days. And listen, the level of intensity and importance of every choice we make only keeps growing. We are moving to this place, and we may have already reached the two-minute warning. We don't know exactly, but the level of intensity and importance of every choice we make will only keep growing. So we need to dial in today. I need you to really plug in because we've got to cover some good ground, go through some statistics and other things. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 through 3. I'm going to cover this ground again and see exactly what Jesus said here. It reads, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, by the way, uh, when a teacher wanted to give an important uh, teaching, he sat down in the tradition of the rabbis. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? For some reason, uh, the disciples were um, impressed to tell Jesus, look at this temple. And then Jesus responded with this powerful statement that this temple is going to completely be destroyed. And they wanted to ask two questions. First of all, when will this happen? And second of all, what will be the sign for your coming 
and the end of the age. Now, those are questions we still ask. Interestingly enough, though, Jesus did not tell them when, and he gave them more than one sign. And we're going to discover that no one knows exactly when, and that's important to remember. And yet, there's an important thing going on. But before we get to his answer, let's put this whole thing in context. We have here uh, Matthew 24. If you know, Matthew 28 is the last chapter. We're moving towards the end in his own life here on earth. And on Sunday, right before this, he had come. It was Palm Sunday. He had the triumphal entry into um, uh, uh, Jerusalem. He briefly went in and looked around in the temple and returned to Bethany for the night. Scholars have suggested that what was happening spiritually there was Jesus went in and just like they would take the other lambs and present them into the temple to make sure they were acceptable to be sacrificed, that Jesus had presented himself into the temple to show that he was acceptable for sacrifice just a few days later. On Monday, he entered um, to Jerusalem, uh, and he then, um, following the chronology of that, he cursed a fruitless fig tree, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, some of us wonder, why was Jesus so angry that they were money changing? Because actually, it was a service to the people. Now, it wasn't necessarily honest, but the real issue was that they had set up shop in one portion of the temple complex called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. The courtyard of the Gentiles. In, G- in God's mind, every single person should be available or able to come to the temple. That was no longer important to the religious leaders. They f- had no care at all or concern about the Gentiles. And Jesus said, don't you know that my house is called a house of prayer? But that's not the, where it finishes. In Mark, it says, for all nations. He was upset that they had shut the door of the temple to the nations. Now, they, of course, were very angry, and they were so angry they wanted to kill him. He left. He came back on Tuesday, and in that process, they, uh, obviously, uh, the religious leaders have been stewing about it all night. He had his greatest confrontation with them, exposing their false religion and hypocrisy. He then left the temple for the last time, never to go back in his earthly body and his non-resurrected body, he would never go back to the temple again. In that setting is when the disciples made a comment about the temple and what Jesus said. So now we're going to look at how precisely Jesus' words in Jesus 24, I'm sorry, in um, Matthew 24, verse 2, were fulfilled. Let's read them again. It says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then actually a little bit earlier in the narrative, he had been looking over Jerusalem and he said these words in Luke 19, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, let's leave that up there, uh, Marlise, if they could just see those words. I want to read to you um, from a book called uh, The World at the End by David Jeremiah. And he uh, is citing Josephus, a Jewish historian who described exactly what happened. Notice how it compares. He writes, fast forward to AD 70. Responding to a Jewish insurgency throughout Judea, The Roman general Titus built large wooden scaffolds around the walls of the temple buildings, a tactic never before used. He piled the scaffolds high with wood and other flammable items and set them on fire. The intense heat weakened the temple structure and the Romans were able to dislodge the giant stones, prying them off one by one and casting them into the valley below. 
Afterwards, soldiers sifted through the rubble left on this temple site to retrieve any gold that had melted into the smoldering ruins. All that remained on the site was flattened down to the retaining walls, just as Jesus had predicted. David Jeremiah goes on to say, what are the odds that Jesus could accurately guess about a huge and hugely honored temple being destroyed within a few decades? What is the likelihood that his guess could be accurate to the very stones on the ground? The statistical probability boggles the mind. But when Jesus speaks, odds mean nothing. What he predicts comes true. What he prophesies happens precisely as he says it will. And so less than 40 years after our Lord's message, the temple was gone. Do you realize that Jesus predicted so detailed that there are some scholars that feel that Matthew was written after the temple was destroyed because they said there's no way that Jesus could have said it beforehand. So accurate. They actually date the uh, gospel later. And I want to encourage you with this. Because he was so exact in that, we can trust that everything else Jesus said in chapter 24 is going to happen. Can you say amen to that? Jesus can be relied upon and can be trusted on this. Now, some of you may be asking, well, why is it taking so long for the everything else to happen? What's up with the delay? Well, many people have asked that. I don't even think that the original disciples thought it was going to take 2,000 years. But here we are in this, and I want to share with you um, um, another visual. I call this the mountainscape of prophecy. Let's look up here. We have a picture of a mountainscape. I don't know where it is, but uh, it's as if the first prophecy is that first mountain that you see. And then Jesus gives other prophecies of other things to happen, and you can see the further mountaintops. Well, from our view, they look relatively close together. But if we were to step up and like take a plane over, we might notice that these mountaintops are literally miles away from each other. That's where it is right now. From their perspective, it all seemed to be is going to happen right away. But there's space between them. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be fulfilled. There's a plan that God is working out in all of that. There's another thing I want to share with you that's very encouraging. It's called the correspondence of prophecy in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. Let's look at this chart here, right here. So we see in Matthew 24 that Jesus says, and these are the signs we're going to cover today, that first of all, there will be false Christs and false prophets, which fits perfectly in Revelation 6, where the first horse is the Antichrist. Then he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, which fits perfectly with the red horse, which is war and bloodshed. Then he says there will be famines. And then he points to the black horse, which is famine. And then he says there'll be pestilence and death. And then it's the pale horse, pestilence and death. Do you notice that the Bible totally agrees with itself? God spoke in one book with many different writers. What Jesus said, John echoed. It's a powerful correspondence. I want you to understand, we're dealing with things that are not an accident that God has planned from the very beginning. Now, with all that being said, let's look at these four areas this day. We'll have time on another uh, week to cover more. And the first one is very urgent. I'd like you to read it with me together. Let's read it. And Jesus answered and said to them. Whoops, probably. There it is. Let's say it together. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So the key word is deceive, right? The first sign that Jesus was most concerned about was deception. 
Deception means, it's the Greek word planao, to lead astray, to cause to wander off the path, to cause someone to hold a wrong view and thus be mistaken. Do you see how dangerous this is? The believers of Christ are feeling like they're genuinely going after God, but they are led off a wrong path and they actually come off the team before the game's over. Jesus' primary concern was to beware of spiritual deception. In fact, if you were to look in verse 24 of chapter 24, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. In the Greek, it is pseudo-Christs and pseudo-prophets. And he says they are going to be throughout church history, but it's going to increase like those labor pangs. So let me share with you a couple examples. First of all, <clears throat> back in what I say the fourth quarter in the 1800s, there was a man named William Miller who was a false prophet. Listen to what he proposed. In the 1800s, a New Englander named William Miller became enamored with determining the date of the imminent return of Christ using dubious mathematical calculations. He collected mounds of data, analyzed it, and was certain Christ would return on March 21st, 1843. The press went wild, and the news spread across the country. As March 21st approached, businesses ceased, people stayed home, and Miller's devoted followers donned their ascension robes, trekked into the mountains, and climbed towering trees to get as high as possible so that they would have less distance to travel through the air when the Lord returned with a shout. The day came and went. The Lord didn't return. The Millerites trudged home, accompanied by jeers and catcalls from their neighbors and friends. It was a confusing day for these disappointed men and women. Even worse, it made everyone who followed the news a bit more cynical about Christianity. William Miller wasn't a man to give up easily. He went back to the scriptures and found a one-year mistake in his calculations. Exactly one year later, he said it was going to happen again, and they all got dressed and tried again. Uh, news flash, it didn't happen. But Miller was one of the first ones to try to do this. Now, he did um, apologize, but not after the damage had been done. And you know, we still have people predicting the date. I remembered, um, I, we talked about the late great planet Earth last um, week, but in the 80s, I remember there was a book that said 87 reasons why God was, Jesus was going to come back in 1987. Didn't happen, so he did a sequel the next year, 88 reasons why he was going to come in 1988. I went on Amazon. You can't buy the book. It's just not there anymore. It's not relevant anymore. So we have false prophets. We also have false Christs. Recall Jim Jones in the 1970s who claimed he was God himself and took all those people into the jungle and then uh, had them all drink Kool-Aid. That's where that comes from, uh, ladies and gentlemen. You drink the Kool-Aid, and it didn't go well for them. In the 90s, there was a man named David Koresh who led the Branch Davidians. He likewise uh, claimed to be a Christ figure. So we've seen these throughout our history. Now, what I want you to realize is that we need to understand deception happens so easily. And first of all, it starts with unevaluated information. Unevaluated information. Somebody claims something and we just take it at their word. I'm going to say something that I hope isn't too shocking to you. Do you realize that the internet doesn't always have truth on it? I know some of you may be shocked that I have to let you know. But so many times we're convinced if we see it on our phone, if we see it in writing, or if it's somebody that we respect saying it, then it must be true. That's an easy way to be deceived. Now let's look at a couple examples of some belief statements of familiar um, other religions and other followings and what they say about Christ. Because we need to understand, 
That's where the key is. What do they say about Christ? Let's look at this first one. Here's the statement. Jesus was not God or the son of God. His virgin birth is likened to Adam's creation. He was sinless, a worker of miracles, and one of the most respected prophets sent by Allah. He was not crucified or resurrected. He, not Muhammad, will return to play a special role before the future judgment day, perhaps turning Christians to Islam. And this is what faith? Islam right there. I kind of gave it away. And I would say this happened in the third quarter of the last days of this game that we're talking about, but it completely redefined who Jesus was. And of course, they insisted the Bible was only a secondary resource. You must go to the Quran. And they claimed that. Now, this one you've heard of, but let's look what they said about Jesus. Jesus is a separate God from the Father, Elohim. He was created as a spirit child by the Father and Mother in heaven and is the elder brother of all men and spirit beings, including Lucifer. His body was created through sexual union between Elohim and Mary. Jesus was married. His death on the cross did not provide full atonement for all sin, but does provide everyone with resurrection. Does anybody know what this is? It's the Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, right there. Wait a second, I thought they sang Christmas carols on. Well, but we've got to go deeper and see where they stand. And this uh, came about in what I call the fourth quarter of history, 1830. Look at this last one. Jesus is not God. Before he lived on earth, he was Michael, the archangel. Jehovah made the universe through him. On earth, he was a man who lived a perfect life. After dying on a stake, not a cross, he was resurrected as a spirit. His body was destroyed. Jesus is not coming again. He returned invisibly in 1914 in spirit. Very soon, he and the angels will destroy all non-Jehovah's Witnesses. Gave it away. Jehovah's Witnesses started in 1879, also in this fourth quarter, and again claimed something that many of us don't realize. If we don't evaluate this, we can walk in deception easily. Let us evaluate the information. The second uh, issue with deception is that it moves on to unbalanced information, not just unevaluated, but unbalanced information. We get information and we don't balance it with God's word. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our standard of truth and we can never let it cease to be that. We always need to take any claim and say, but what does the Bible say? Because what will happen in these other faiths is, well, the Bible's a great idea, but uh, this book is better. This prophet is better. This revelation is updated than what we have. Can I encourage you on something? Spurgeon said this, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. I think I better say that again. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. So what does your Bible look like? Is it nice and pristine and has some nice dust on it? Or is it beginning to fall apart? Because if you're not balancing things with God's word, you are in danger of being deceived. And let me encourage you with this. Not just balance with God's word, but balance God's word with God's word. Because at times, cults will use God's word. They'll pull out a couple verses, put it all together, create a whole new belief system, and they took it all out of context. And we've got to be wiser than that, more discerning than that. We've got to be like the Bereans that search the scripture and balance the scripture with itself. So we need un, uh, it's unevaluated information, unbalanced information as another step. But the last one is isolated information, where we get information and we don't have the checks and balances of Christian community around us to help us and protect us. Can I tell you, 
the worst thing to do is just sit all by yourself and try to figure this all out by yourself. You are a sitting duck for untruth and deception to happen in your life. Invite people around you. Get involved with other people that can balance you, can help you, can guide you. And God will protect you in this way. So we have these, this first sign that Christ was so um, uh, concerned about. Let's look at the second one. I'd like you to read these verses with me, uh, verse 6 through 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus said this is going to happen throughout history. We know it's going to become more intense. Uh, this is from David Jeremiah citing a book, uh, an article from the New York Times. He says, according to this article, the world has been at peace for only 268 of the past 3,400 years. In other words, only 8% of our history has been peaceful. No one knows how many people have perished in times of war. The Times speculated at least, listen, 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century alone. Some experts believe a billion people have lost their lives during all the military conflicts that have pockmarked history like bomb craters. This is a serious uh, issue. We have these powerful statistics. And we have here this discussion from Jesus. He says, between nations will be conflict. How many of you know there's still war going on between nations? So urgent. We see Ukraine versus Russia and really versus the rest of the world. We're all being drawn into that. And what's the deal these past couple weeks with Chinese balloons? All over the place. There is war going on. There's war between people groups, ethnic genocide as it was in Rwanda or Serbia or even now in places like Syria and China. And religious differences have separated and there's war there between the Sunnis, Sunnis and the Shiites. And we have to be aware of this going on. But I'm sad to tell you today, there's also conflict within churches. Churches are falling apart or being broken apart. Sometimes more churches are founded by church splits than by literal church plants. Beyond that, we have within churches offense spreading. The Bible says, and Jesus is going to say, be careful because many people are going to be offended in the last days. Think about what that is and where that's going. Uh, this is serious stuff, but we need to be aware of it. Very quickly, let me just encourage you. Offense starts with misinformation. You hear by, um, uh, by a hearsay that somebody said this about you, and you never got the full word anyway. It's the telephone game that's destructive. Offense continues with misunderstanding. You do hear what it says, but you don't understand it, you misunderstand what they meant by those words. And then we go to misinterpretation of someone's motives. We hear what they say, we misunderstand it, and then we assume this is what their heart is towards us. At that point, we have offense, and we have another uh, an opportunity for the enemy to bring destruction to uh, the church of God. And then, uh, of course, uh, what's so sad is there's conflict everywhere within families. How many families are being torn apart by constant and unspeakable conflict, sometimes explosive, often smoldering beneath the surface? How many families have people in their families that are not talking to each other and have not done so for decades? God help us. That was the second sign. Moving quickly, let's look at the third sign, and it's really just part of verse 7. Jesus said, and there will be famines. Famines. Jesus' third sign was global scarcity. The lack of food, it starts with. Rick Renner says, according to a report from 2016, more than 250,000 people die every year around the world from hunger and hunger-related causes. 
Another shocking report is that between 250,000 to 500,000 children become blind each year due to vitamin deficiency caused by extreme undernourishment. It is still an issue, and it's so sad because our world has all the resources we, can, we need to feed the world. This has come about. And um, obviously, uh, one of the problems goes to the first previous one, uh, conflict. The Ukraine and Russia are in war with each other, and between the two of them, they are responsible for 30% of the world's production of grain. Now we have famine in Africa because of conflict in uh, Ukraine and Russia together. Crazy on all of this. Now, beyond this, um, Rick Renner says, when we talk about famine, it means shortage of grain. And grain is a commodity. It's something that we do to actually exchange economic things. And he said, really, Jesus wasn't just talking about famine of food, but economic instability. How many of you sense economic instability growing around here? Let me just name three phrases for you. Toilet paper. <laughs> baby formula. Eggs. What in the world is going on with our chickens around here? Do I need to say more about the presence of economic instability and the growth that it is? All the supply issues. Now, let's go to the last one. The last thing we'll cover today is verse uh, 7 as well. And there will be pestilences. Big fancy word for disease. The word is loimos, and it means pestilence, plague, or disease. And we would think about that, but I'm telling you what, that seems so much more relevant now than ever, doesn't it? Let's take a look at some of the recent epidemics and pandemics. 1918, Spanish flu, 40 million people died. 1957 through 58, the Asian flu, 1.1 million died. 1968, the Hong Kong flu, 40 million died again. Some of these, we didn't even realize how many people were dying. HIV and AIDS resulted in 35 million people passing away. And then, of course, we know about COVID to the point of this uh, chart was through 2022, 6.3 million. But you look at that and say, well, that's not as many. But all of us know the devastation that COVID brought, not just in the people that died, but in the lives and uh, ways of life being disrupted. I would say that we have more casualties from isolation and mental health, suicide, discouragement, depression. It has destroyed our world. Jesus said these things would happen, and they're happening. We need to be aware of this. Well, what can we say about all of this? Let me just make a, uh, what I trust is an obvious conclusion right now. The signs are there. The two-minute warning is here or near. We're there. There's a sense of increased intensity in our world, even among people who are not Christians. Now, you're going to say, well, Pastor Fred, you've succeeded in totally depressing me on this Super Sunday. What are we going to do about this? I'm glad you asked. Jesus has answers for us. How should we respond? And this isn't the only message. We're gonna do this several times till we get it clear what our response can and should be. And dealing with them in reverse order, in addressing disease, global scarcity, the disasters hitting our world. First of all, embrace trust. Would you say that with me? Embrace trust. Embrace trust. What do I mean by that? First of all, trust in God's character. Trust in God's character. Do you realize that the overriding affirmation of Scripture is God is good? Would you say that with me? God is good. Say it again. God is good. And if you're ever not sure, write it somewhere. Write it on that mirror that you see in the morning before you even fully can focus and you see God is good. 
put it somewhere on your car, somewhere else. Remind yourself, God is good and we can trust him even in this time. He is bringing all things together for a purpose. Second of all, trust God's strength. Can I tell you, God is not surprised about what's going on. He's not wringing his hands like, oh, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. He's not overpowered. His strength is there. He's still in charge, and he's bringing this thing to a good conclusion. Thirdly, trust God's heart. Trust God's heart. One of the things I loved about the whole uh, pandemic was that one song that came out of it, The Blessing. And you remember that whole moment in the, in the blessing where he says, he is for you. He is for you. He is for you. I promise he's for you. Even if you say no, he is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. Not just that. And then there's another um, song back in the 80s or so, and it, it was this. The words were, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Some of you need to know that today. You can embrace trust. Even if you don't see it, you can trust his heart. So trust God's um, character. Trust God's strength. Trust God's heart. And then may I invite you to do this. Partner your trust with others. Reach out to others to speak faith over you. I can't tell you the times when Alice and I have been in the lowest moments. It was being with friends that lifted us up. It was key close friends that changed our lives because they could encourage us to trust when we were basically out of strength to do it ourselves. Invite others. So embrace trust. Second one, dealing with conflict. Seek reconciliation. Would you say that with me? Seek reconciliation. Let's pursue uh, addressing these things. First of all, seek the correct information. Get the information straight before you react to something. Seek full understanding. Seek to understand what's going on and, and embrace that. Clarify each other's motives. Let somebody share their motives. Don't guess. One of the worst things to do, ladies and gentlemen, men, is to try to guess what your wife is thinking. Please don't do that. That's, well, you're going to see me a lot sooner than you planned if you do that. All right? And even more, evaluate the perspective factor. Evaluate the perspective that might be affecting things. Let's take a look at this picture. I want to ask what you see. How many of you see a vase? How many of you see two faces? Well, the answer is yes, isn't it? But it's interesting how I'm convinced that's a vase. How do you not see that? Well, I see two faces. We're looking at the same thing, and we're seeing different things. There's a commercial that will probably show up tonight. It's, uh, was it, Nationwide Insurance or something where there's a debate, and they throw, they throw the red flag, they ask for a video review, and then it gets all solved because there's a video of it. The problem is several people can look at the same video and still disagree. That's why we still have people adamantly believing that their team should have won. <laughs> Just saying. You know, because we look at the same video and we come from a different perspective. Can you under help realize that when we are in conflict with each other, we see it slightly differently and that's okay, but work with that. What do you see? And let me encourage you. The last one is this. Take ownership for your part in the conflict. Take ownership for your part. You know what? One of the best things to do, by the way, is to resolve this face to face. If you're in conflict with somebody, don't text them. That's not going to solve it. It's so easy to dislike. And let me just tell you what I think. Send. Now it's all fixed. Or an email. You know, Lord, help us all because we think it's easier. So let me just say this. A resolution is not possible if only one person is wrong. All right, some of you needed to hear that. 
Our resolution is not possible if only one person is wrong. Humble yourself. Say, I'm sorry. And don't say you're sorry because you, they think you want to be, say you're sorry. Actually, be sorry. All right? So we need to address all of this. Conflict is such an issue. The last one was the issue of truth. And so with truth, I want to just encourage you, pursue truth. Avoid deception. Carefully evaluate information. Carefully balance information. And pursue truth in community. Invite others. Now, all of this came together, and I realized there was one major point for today that God was putting together with this. And it's this encouragement right now. Find close Christian community. Find close Christian community. And literally, this popped into my head yesterday. I had finished most of my notes, and this just came. I knew I was supposed to do something with this. And here's what it is. I just sense this is God's word for us today. As we near or enter the two-minute warning, recognize that the enemy's greatest strategy is to polarize, separate, and isolate God's people from each other. Do you see what he's doing? He knows he's not going to win the game, but he wants to get many, as many people out of the game as possible. Realize he wants to isolate us, polarize us, separate us, and get us at each other's throats. At that moment, he has won. Think about the most devastating consequences of COVID-19, economic hardship and global scarcity, conflict and battling truth claims. All of it, the most devastating thing was that people lost their faith and separate from others. Think about it. At the most important point in the game, the enemy is trying to break up the team. Would you bow your heads with me today? Father, I thank you for your people. And I pray that they will sense your love for them today. You did not put Matthew 24 into the Bible to scare people. You did it to prepare people. I ask, Lord, that people would listen closely right now to these questions. I have three questions for us as we close. Heads bowed, eyes closed.